welcome to episode 11 of Painter by Quarterly Slush Pile. We've made it past the decade mark, or at least 10 episodes, so um, I guess we're in our third month, too, so we're doing pretty well and enjoying it, and we hope you are. Um, the reason behind this podcast is um, people always wonder about that mysterious space in between the, accept- the acceptance or the rejection letter. So we decided to just drop that fourth wall, lift the veil, any cheesy metaphor you'd like, and um, let you in on at least our editorial process. So um, I think we'll do a round of introductions first. So I am Kathleen Volk-Miller. I'm a director of uh, publishing program here at Drexel and co-editor of the Painted Bride Quarterly. And um, I write memoir and other creative nonfiction. With me in the studio in Philadelphia today, we do have, we have two newbies today. (laughs) We'll let them go one at a time. In the studio today, we have Tim Fitz. Hi, my name is Tim Fitz, and I am a first-year writing teacher here at Drexel, and I teach creative writing also at Penn State Brandywine and Curtis Institute of Music, and I write mostly short stories and sometimes novels. Fabulous. And uh, a newbie today is Alexa Josephowicz. Tell us about you, Alexa. I'm Alexa. I'm a rising senior here at Drexel. I am the first student in the accelerated publishing program. So I'm getting my BA in English and master's in publishing. I like to write fiction, uh, created nonfiction slash memoir. Absolutely. Um, and so let's go to Marion, who is in the same time zone in New York. Yay! Yay! Yay. Yay. So happy to be here in your time zone. <laughs> <laughs> Tell I'm, us about where you I'm, are right now and who you I'm are. I'm sitting in my tiny little New York apartment looking out onto Morton Street, and I'm so happy it cuddled up in this little space. Um, I am Marian Wren. I'm the co-editor of Painted Bride Quarterly. I also run the writing program for New York University in Abu Dhabi, which is what takes me out of your time zone. Um, <laughs> and I write uh, creative nonfiction. I write um, some scholarly stuff. And I recently had an article published in a book called Talking Back to Globalization. And the piece is called Strategic Sociability. And it's all about um, journalists and writers and the Cold War and the importance of cocktail hour (laughs) as a Cold War strategy. So, um, yeah, so that's what I've been working on lately. And yay, Eastern time zone. Here I am. (laughs) Okay, Okay, Jason, where are you today? I am in Brooklyn. I am Jason Schneiderman. I am an associate professor of English at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. Yes, the associate is recent. And (laughs) And an associate editor at Painted Bride Quarterly. Um, I write mostly poetry, but I have also edited an anthology for freshman composition on queer topics that's out from Oxford University Press. And I just got 1.4 thousand views on Periscope uh, for reading. Um, actually, a reading I did um, with, the, with the Academy of American Poets and Brain Pickings to um, commemorate the uh, violence in Orlando. So, wow! All I'm about um, the fact that it was a it was a reading um, in grief. Mm. Wow! One point four. One point four thousand. Does that mean one thousand four hundred? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm a little slow on the math. <laughs> Um, With us today is a very special guest, Jen Knox. Jen, where are you? And tell us about you. I am in Nevada, Iowa, which is spelled uh, like Nevada, but we pronounce it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And it is nothing like the other Nevada and uh, certainly nothing like Las Vegas. (laughs) I'm about 10 miles outside of Ames and Iowa State University. And um, I'm a poet, mostly, but I also uh, write some fiction and nonfiction. I just finished an essay for a British poetry magazine called Magma about uh, humor and authority and um, women writers and how we fit into that. And I'm also, um, I just received a 
fellowship from the Iowa Council for the Arts for a crowdsourced poetry project on native Iowa birds called Iowa Bird of Mouth. Nice. Wow. Nice. Congratulations. Bravo. Thank you. We're going to try and get uh, we're going to try and get everybody in on it at the at the Iowa DNR and um, even people over in the in the state house. I don't even know what you say. Well, what's the DNR? Uh, Department of Natural Resources. Oh, I heard do not resuscitate. Me like, too. That can't be right. <laughs> That's yeah, the only DNR I know. Be weird with birds. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have little stickers so, and around I'm their really legs. happy to be here. I've loved being the bride quarterly forever. Aw, thank you, Jen. There's always been talks to me, so I'm happy to be here. Yay. Well, we'll find out later. We asked you for many reasons, but we're really happy that you could make it. So glad yeah. that, you, that you're here Thanks virtually in this in this uh, virtual world that we've created here. Um, speaking of the virtual world, we have three poems by the same author, and the first one has really interesting formatting. And so I think our listeners would be would be um, really well off to go to pbq.drexel.edu and hit the pages for this episode and take a look at this poem because we're going to read it aloud for you, but you need to see it on the page as well, I think. So who of the we would like to read Leafless and get this potty started? I'll try. This is Marion, um, and I'm happy to, to give Laura McCullough's Leafless a go. All right. Um, Ready, ready, ready? Ready. Okay. This is a poem by Laura McCullough, Leafless. In the end, my mother's shoulders, barely covered and quivering, were like birds. Once I made a dress for her, the fabric creamy white, the print a single brown tree spanning the width with stark branches. It was 1974. I was 14. Each night, I taught myself to sew, feeding the fabric through the foot, thinking how surprised she would be. I remember seeing her in it, how we both loved the gesture, the achievement, and though it fit poorly, the print was enough for us. She wore it once and never again, let me see her walk out the door in it. Maybe love's architecture is exposed when we try and fail at what we mean. Outside the hospital, winter had flayed everything. The trees charcoaled against the sky, their shadows Thumb smudges on the institutional snow hid lawn, and inside the air was redolent of shit, flowers, and chlorine. The first time I changed her clothes, peeling back from her shoulders the blue flecked cotton gown, then sliding a clean pink one up her arms, we held each other in the oily light, spent. Terrific. Sweet. Thank you so much, Mayor. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a poem. Great reading. Thank you. Well, what do you think? <laughs> um, I think I love the moment. Um, after the word maybe, love's architect maybe oh, love's yeah. architecture is exposed when we try and fail at what we mean. Outside yes. the hospital hospital winter had fleed everything. I, I was so in the scene of the 14-year-old making and giving the dress that I forgot the beginning, which was the end of mom's life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And the outside the hospital was jarring, but in the best of ways. Right? Yeah, I almost felt like I, I, I got so into the story of making the dress that, that it, was, it was sort of hard to go away from it. It was hard to kind of get back to a present. Mm-hmm. So you're, what I'm saying, jarring in a good way, was difficult for you? Yeah. Um, yeah I, th I think the balance is, is um, you know, a little... It, it, it definitely tilts for me towards the, um, the past. Mm -hmm. I thought... Um, I'm going to disagree. I think that one of the... One of the triumphs of this poem is its balance of the of the two pasts and how much time she spends in each one, I found it to be very, very balanced. And um, I didn't I didn't feel the time shift. I didn't feel a, a disconnect when she moved from one to the next. Mm -hmm. I was I was pretty uh, floored by it. Mm -hmm. I would agree with Jen. I, I loved the Love's Architect 
uh, architecture is exposed, and then the use of the words like flayed, charcoal, like these yeah. these dark words that are so powerful and kind of go back to the like exposure of love and its mm. architecture was super great. Well, I love listening to you guys talk about this because like in in a way the poems moving along this sort of subjective and like this this comparison, right, between the image of the 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 dress at 14 and then the the gown going on, right, in the 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 poet's present with the mother and I'm learning a lot about like how how to balance right the, that fusion that juxtaposition of these two images right and in McCullough's mind, one's holding the key to the other in a way right or at least one's got the resonance of the other deepening the significance of of the other in a way, um, and I and I think I I think I love poems that do that like mm-hmm. using two images to deepen the story of of either image respectively but i think jason raises a great point like that's risky business if it's mm-hmm. if it's skewing the wrong way right like if it's or if it's coming down too heavy on one side and not you know opening up the other it's a hard thing to balance yeah yeah i kind of love this poem though and i have to say it might be because i'm bringing a little extra info to it um and it's not because i i know you know anything about Laura's experience with her mother, but I we published something by her some some years ago, and it was about um, a thrift store. Kathy, do you remember this essay that she wrote? This piece that she wrote, and it and I what I loved about that piece was the way she was very attentive to fabrics, right, and like <laughs> textiles, and how interested she was, right. Mm-hmm. And so, like in some ways, I, I've gotten this bigger continuity. So this poem is like plugging into this, you know my imagined sense of Laura McCullough's preoccupations with fabrics, right? <laughs> but here she's spun in a totally different direction, trying to make sense of grief, you know, and the loss of the, you know, of her mother. Yeah. I, and I do love the way that sort of power moves through the poem in terms of clothing and fabric. Mm-hmm. The, the, the generous gesture of the mother wearing this ill-fitting dress as a kind of sign of love is then kind of returned with the daughter changing her clothes when she no yeah. longer can. Having to help her with our hospital gown. Yeah, yeah these two dresses. I uh, made a note on um, my copy about how she wore this dress once and never again let me see her walk out of the door in it. Uh, and then I kind of went back to the last stanza. The first time I changed her clothes, the sense that like she's in the hospital and she will not walk out of here wearing those clothes. Yeah. Um, so that image kind of like dealing with loss and grief as Marion was talking about was really powerful with that connection. I like how the sewing takes us out of the moment in the poem because that's sort of what sewing does. It, it, it sort of, This poem mimics the therapeutic effect of sewing in, or any type of uh, yeah. thoughtful making or work. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're doing and you get lost in that flow zone and that's part of the healing process. And there's nothing worse when you're grieving to have nothing to do and just being idle. Um, and so when you turn to something like this, I think it has a very positive effect. And so I, I do think it's risky doing that in a poem because you can distract the reader and just have the reader forget what it's about. Or you can um, you can make something that, that's really profound. She's stitching the pieces together. Mm-hmm. 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 And the trees and the in the parking lot of the hospital and the tree on the front of the dress. It's like she has a foot in both in both places as she's sewing these sewing these moments together. Yeah. yeah. And Jen, look at the third stanza down, the one that is split. It's mm-hmm. just so yeah. well crafted yeah. and it it mimics mm-hmm. everything you just said, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I have to say, one of the things I really admire about the piece, too, is it resists any kind of, like, easy sentimentality, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is, that last line is, it ends with the word spent, right? Mm -hmm. Not joy, not closure, not, and all's, you know what I mean, grief and love and all's right with the world. It is, you know, the second to last stanza, it's the the air is redolent of shit, flowers, and chlorine, right? And then the, the last move is sliding a pink gown up her arms and we hold each other in the oily light spent right so you've got that that sort of that that oscillation 
and exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. I don't really like the uh, tone of shit here. I wish it would have been excrement or something like that. It kind of, it, it just sort Touch of takes out. me out of it in yeah. and, and not a good way. I mean, it's not like a deal breaker thing. It's just, I don't, I'm not crazy about the tone, but it's uh, mm-hmm. you know, just an observation. I think it's interesting that she put it first. That was a decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was no, that was no accident. In the same vein, I think it was very much yeah. like a decision to end with chlorine and this like sense of what that smells like. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that, and that's great, right? It's sort of like it's the flowers and the chlorine are covering the scent of shit. So she's actually starting with what's right being covered, right? The or, or yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like what buries it, right? The air fresheners or the attempt at <laughs> fixing it. Are, are we ready? Because we do have a bunch more work to do. Yeah, yeah we do. Should we call it? I think so. I think we're ready to vote. So in the studio, we'll do our usual one, two, three, thumbs up, thumbs down. And then the rest of the crew will vote remotely. And Joe will let us know what that total is. So one, two, three, shoot. I voted. Yes, I, yes. I think the it, votes rolled in so through. quickly. I'm, I'm, right. uh, yeah, Joe barely had time to yeah. spin in his chair and let us know that it is a unanimous yes. So, yay, yay Laura leafless. McCullough, leafless, one in. So she's right. one and oh, going into reclaimed wood. And who would like to read this for us? Jen, do you want to read it? Sure. Great. Reclaimed wood. I confess now I have begun to henna my red hair gone dull in parts and penny bright in others. And I always tried to subdue its wildness. But when the hull of our marriage busted rock and began to leak, we both thought it was a good idea to renovate the kitchen together by ourselves. Mm-hmm closed up the hall to the back rooms to create more privacy and took down a load-bearing wall in hope of opening the flow. My husband looked like Christ, hauling the salvaged timbers from a warehouse deep in the piney woods, one by one up the front stoop, laying them in our suburban living room, posing as a Brooklyn loft. We framed the new wide space one as header, two as column braces, then sat on the floor cross-legged, looking at our work in progress. The way the wood had aged, the colors and striations, notches and hammered pegs. We felt our 50s ranch had a new story now, something with weight, and we held hands a little while before getting up, heading to the shower, falling back into our routine. Nice reading, Jen. It's lovely to hear your voice in this. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So this is the second poem by Laura McCullough, um, and it's interesting to see the like the way they they kind of I don't know like both both of these poems so far have been about making right this sort of like very tactile you know the the doing of something in order to figure something out right. Mm-hmm. And it has that the back and forth um, with the lines, mm-hmm. the lines. Some are into like how they indent on and off, mm-hmm. um, which is also the way Alan Dugan does it in Love Poem I and Thou, mm. which is has a lot has a lot in common with this. Hmm. But the narrative arc, you guys, do they do they go back to the routine? Is that sad at the end? I think it means the marriage is still busted, huh? Or not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought they had sex. <laughs> Where? In the shower. Oh, interesting. Getting oh. up, heading into the shower, falling back. I mean, I do think that, like, like the obvious thing is that the relationship doesn't survive. That that the marriage. You know, you can you can rebuild a kitchen, but you can't rebuild. Um, 
desire. I don't yep. know. Are, I mean, yeah, are we cynical? I yeah, mean, they do yeah. hold hands. That's why I was curious. The storyteller in me was like, what What happened? Because because I so love the, um, the way the first stanza ends with, but when the hull of our marriage busted yeah. rock. Yeah. Shoot. Yeah. That's amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> I really like the lead into we thought it was a good idea to renovate the kitchen. It's never a good idea to renovate your kitchen. <laughs> it's never a good idea. And that whole build up to renovate our kitchen. Yeah, right. that, that's delicious, right? That they did it together. Together. By ourselves, by ourselves. Yeah. right. Really I was delicious. snickering, even though I yeah. knew the spawn yes. already. I heard that. Yeah. Jason, I love that you 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 get them to sex, right? And it's if they they head to the shower, right, together and by themselves, right? Like, that is the most unsexy sex if they're having sex, mm-hmm. right? And I, I love that phrase, Jason. Like, you, you can, you know, you can re- rebuild a kitchen, but it's really hard to rebuild desire, right? So... I think Kathy's question is is a good one. I don't I don't know that this is um... well. It's kind of impossible, right? Right. I mean, right. you you can't. You're they're turning this '50s ranch into the Brooklyn loft. They're trying to give everything a facelift. Right. They're by themselves, and it's just it's kind of a hopeless thing, right? Right. Well, I right. love that they don't. She doesn't tell us one way or the other. We're able mm-hmm. to read this Cute. into it on our own. I mean, if it if it steered us one way or the other. And it would be, uh, it would be kind of a drag to read. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're just led down this way to see them building this kitchen and being irritated with each other. I mean, it could go. I mean, they could. They seem to get along. They hold hands. They take a shower. Um, and she's already healed herself in one poem with making things. But you know, it's also a kitchen, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, I guess it, it lets us make up our own minds on how we want to well, it also I, Maybe this is a layer that's not there, but, but it, it increases the resale value. So if you do decide to split up. No, oh, shit. Oh, yeah, Jason. You get <laughs> I like that. All right. I like that <laughs> We're so cynical. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I feel like I'm just going to like add to it. Um, I'm really loving the phrase posing as a Brooklyn loft. Um, this idea of posing and, and what how they're posing as a couple. Like, yes, we'll, we'll do this great project and it'll just totally bring us back together. And that we're holding hands for a bit, but we get up and we fall back into the routine. That sense of like falling, falling in love or falling out of love. Mm-hmm. Okay, how many people think they showered together? It's so funny. We're like off on this thing about that, and you know, I, uh, where, wait, ooh, I, I don't I, know I, what the real I, truth is, if it's true at all. This whole thing wait, could be fictional. Jen, what did you say? You don't? I don't think. I don't. I don't find the end of it romantic. If, if I'm holding hands with somebody and I let go of their hand, that's mm-hmm. not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she could have, they could have done anything in that space, but she chose to make them hold hands mm-hmm. and then let go. Mm-hmm. Right. There's also like not a sense of like helping each other get up, like guiding each other to the shower. <laughs> but Jason had them showering together, and I did not think they showered together. Yeah. Hello. It's Laura McCullough telling us what the yes. real spotlight <laughs> is. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> Laura, by the way, does also have the incredibly beautiful hair described from the in the poem. I know. Yeah. That's why we're all putting Laura here. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And you that's know true. what? Um, I, I don't know, Jen, your reading really was so great. But like, we're just hearing about hunting the hair. She's also changing herself or yes. trying to get yes. back to something, mm-hmm. yep. you know, that yeah. once was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also to start yeah. the poem out with this way that I confess, there's almost like yes. this kind of, I don't know if it's shame or that she was hiding something in the sense that she well, has to yeah. now change or admit Wait, to. that means it turned her gray doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this turned her hair gray. Did she? And the, in a way, reclaiming the wood is reclaiming mm-hmm. the hair that she had when she was young. Yeah, right. And well, okay, so there's a really raunchy joke to make about wood if we are thinking about showers and sex. 
but yeah. we'll, we'll leave that. <laughs> um, Thank you, Mary. You're welcome. Uh, but the, the, the way she's even describing her, the way her hair has changed over time, that it's dull in some spots and bright in other spots, reminds me of the striation of the wood that she describes too, right? Yeah. Like it's, there's this, and, it, and all of that becomes a kind of interesting way of talking about the striations and the, the layers, the dimensions of this, this you know, busted marriage, right? Like it's, it's, they can feel that it's busted and they're trying to reclaim what's salvageable. Um, oh, and and, and I, I think it's also that way in which um, when you're living through a really powerful narrative or experience, you begin to see that narrative or experience everywhere. Yeah. When you're going through a divorce, you see everything ending after it's been around for a long time. When you're going through grief, you're seeing everything um, disappearing. When you're go when you're falling in love, you you see all these hopes and possibilities, and like the the way that everything resonates across everything with this like master narrative of reconstruction. I think it's really a success of the poem. Yeah. Well said. Um, do Thanks. we want to vote? Are we ready to I vote? think we should. Okay. Wait, I'm writing down master narrative of reconstruction. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. One, two, three, vote. <laughs> well, three. We're uh, unanimous yet again. Laura McCullough is now 2 and 0. Um, Laura McCullough. Unanimous. All these places in the editor, so yay. And now we are um, with the wildly titled Maggot Therapy, a long poem that again our listeners might want to look at while they hear it. Should we even should we even take turns reading it? <laughs> Three pages, guides. Many, many, many stanzas. Do you want to do I it, Jason? I, I bet you can. I, I bet you can handle that. it. Magatherapy. Near death, sometimes the hands curve into themselves like claws. I held my mother's open, soothing the fingers, trimming the wild nails. Once, years before, my husband and I awoke to a fawn caught in the family compost, a hole on its back end festering with worms, and he pinched each one out swiping his little finger in the bowl of the wound and coating it with antibiotic salve. I loved him and how he saved this small thing. It's a story I have told over and over. Today, though, I'm thinking of the medical uses for maggots, biodebridement and extracorporeal digestion, their enzymes liquefying dead tissue in wounds, and wonder, do I feed off the dead who live inside me? When my mother was dying, she had a vision of her non-corporeal father, brother, sisters. Her last words, why have you left me alone? She never opened her eyes again, but chest, her chest a drowning well. The bodily signs of death, the skin modeling as blood flow slows, breathing, open-mouthed, jaw unhinged. I won't recount the signs of a dying marriage, but he left two days after her funeral. Physically, he returned, but told me he'd fallen in love with someone else, that his love for me had passed. Above my mother's body, orange mist had exhaled and dispersed. A light bulb busted open, its luminescent gas escaping. The word fluorescent is so similar to the word fluorescence, meaning flowering. And somewhere between these two, there is a splendor I can barely stand. Inflorescence refers to flowers clustering on one branch, each a separate floret. But if they are tightly clustered, as in the dandelion seed head, they look incomplete alone, though the whole is an illusion. The word for this, sudanthium, means false flower. Infrutescence, its fruiting stage, gives us grapes, ears of corn, stalks of wheat, so many of the berries we love. This morning, my hands ache as though in the night I've been trying to claw my way out of a hole I am down in, having lost the body I came into this world through, and my husband's as well. It's almost as if my body had come to believe his was a part of its own, a connection he would have to break or die. 
Medical experts say it takes two moltings for maggots to do the job well, to feed enough to clean a wound. I do not feel clean at all, though in our shower, my husband and I still huddle some days, hunched into the spray. We call it watering. When we do, we scrub each other, grateful for the living, dying flesh, but trying to get clean of each other. That fawn he saved way back when we were new in love was released into the wild. Surely it had a scar identifying it, evidence of what flesh my husband was willing to enter in order to keep something alive. Lately, he seems more clear-eyed, and it is as if a cicatrix husk is cracking. Neither of us know who will emerge, but he seems luminescent, a kind of light created by the excitation of the smallest elements and not giving off warmth, but a cold glow that at least illuminates. <laughs> that was a lot, Jason. All those tricky words. Right? Oh, it was so it was such a joy to read. Yeah. Oh, that poem feels so good in the mouth. Like it's just it's like a choreographed ballet for your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you listen to it, it sounds like a tour de force, right? The way she's yeah. able to move, right, um, through these images and into this sort of drawing on a very sort of, you know, rational um, dictionary quality sort of recitation of definition in order to unpack the decay in this marriage and it's and the decay and transformation frankly you know so bravo right. Jason that was a beautiful reading well, and, and for me a lot of what, what I think is so powerful about this poem is how objectivity becomes a kind of selflessness mm-hmm. or that, that, that she's in, in using this kind of language of the gardener and using this kind of, of language of the, of the scientific observer who tries to catalog and find the taxonomy um, she's able to see the husband going through this metamorphosis that at the moment is destroying her. Right. Um, she's still able to kind of observe and catalog. And it's just, oh my God. I mean, the, and knowing how painful that is and how carefully it, it's observed is just devastating. But Jason, I, I, you just put your finger on what feels like a real paradox in the poem too. It's like, if she's achieving a kind of like objectivity slash selflessness, it's the, the poem is structured around this, these, like this series of like really subjective stitching of images, right? So again, it's this practice of this like subjective validation. Like how is it that the maggot and this fawn becomes the metaphor slash image through which she's able to talk about her decaying marriage? Like that's totally McCullough's capacity as a poet to fuse that which feels really subjective but then that gets erased out into this kind of stance of objectivity which i i think is a is pretty freaking awesome that reminds me of your work jason Hmm. yeah and the selflessness of taxonomy is that what you said yeah Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely Yeah, I mean, I started before this poem was read. I was like, it's long, but man, it's just so well managed. <laughs> is that an okay <laughs> word to use? It's just so well managed. And they were showering together. Oh, stop. I knew you were going <laughs> to. Yeah, do that. but it's not a happy shower. <laughs> I'm not selfless. <laughs> I just want to be right. <laughs> That is so not a sexy shower, the watering. It's true. Yeah. It's all loofahs. <laughs> I'm a little bothered by the antibiotic salve. <laughs> because I just can't believe that a deer needs our pharmaceuticals to get by in the wild. And if it, if it, I, that bothers me a little bit. I mean, I know it's just maybe, maybe the husband goes out there and puts antibiotics out on it, but I'm also a little bothered by the worms in the, in the, the festering worms and the hole in its back, mm. um, because they're eating dead material. And so they're actually cleaning the wound. So maybe, but maybe that's part of it. Maybe his, maybe his cleaning the wound and putting the antibiotic salve as part of, was one of his flaws. Maybe it works as a metaphor. Okay, so this, there's only one species, um, of maggot and fly that only feeds on dead flesh. 
every other species of maggot and fly will actually like eat the host. Um, and this is like a whole like pre-antibiotic thing that like, I guess it was like, I don't remember if it was World War One or World War Two or the 1930s, but um, it, there was this, this treatment was discovered that you could treat um, particularly open wounds and separating wounds with this one particular maggot. Um, however, the psychological effect of soldiers waking up to discover their wounds infected with maggots um, was so devastating that, that many, like most doctors kind of agreed like, yeah, this kind of works, but like, it's really strange. So I say that I think that the deer is better off having been- But a deer is not gonna be freaked um, out by the maggots. <laughs> Can't even and see him. I mean, deer doesn't know it has maggots, but I'm also saying it's, it's extremely unlikely that the blue bottle fly was the exact fly who had laid the maggots huh? in the I bet more maggots work on then, deer than people though. Because they've got tougher immune systems. I'm, mm -hmm. They're built for that. I'm, I'm, going, I'm, I'm going to stay on the side of, of he saved the deer. <laughs> oh, he totally didn't save the deer. I'm, he may have helped his own mind, but he didn't save the deer. Right, I think I'm, no I'm really into Tim's idea because the husband, he comes back physically, like he stays. This idea that like he thinks he's helping, yeah. but in a way he's hurting even yeah. more carries over to the image that like he comes back, but he's like, I don't really love you. Like I'm here, but I'm just going to continue inflicting some pain. Yeah, I yeah, like that. I like that reading of it. It was released into the wild, which means it wasn't, it didn't go back to the wild after they got their hands on it. Somebody else released it into the wild. Hmm. But you think they so called some like animal control board or something after they fixed the wound? It was released into the wild. Yeah, that passive tense makes me think that, that it, it didn't stop. To, they did not heal the deer. That's. Hmm. Hmm. I just would like to thank Jason Schneiderman for once again proving that we don't need Google. When you have Schneiderman, there is no need for the Googling. Mm -hmm. Well, and also Tim Fitz, coyote expert, right? He also knows a thing or two about worms. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jason, can you say sick of chicks puff one more time? I really like that. <laughs> I have to see the letters before I can say yeah, it. Yeah, what is that? I didn't know what that meant. It seems. So if we're, yeah, if we're not Googling, I want Jason to say it and then tell me what it is. <laughs> it's, um, it's second to last stand up. Uh, husk. So sexy. What the hell is that? Is that a I, cicada? Is that like a cicada? I Googled it. <gasps> uh -huh. um, I, I turned off my microphone so you wouldn't hear my keyboard. <laughs> and I was wrong. I, I also thought that a cicatrix was a kind of cicada, but it is not. It is actually the scar of a healed wound or the scar on the bark mm. of a tree. Oh, mm. interesting. Mm. Hey. Huh. So the scar mm. is cracking. The scar is reopening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was the word husk of it that made me think it was an insect. Yeah, me too. Right. Yeah, like the shell would be left behind. But wow. So it's a seal. It's a, it's a scar that is cracking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I, think, I think that once we started, like, talking about, um, you know, the sort of externals of the narrative, it sort of means that we've we've kind of left the discussion of the poem itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I so agree. Maybe, maybe we should vote. Yes, I'm up for voting. Um, Tim Fitz is pulling an Irish goodbye as we speak, but he left oh, his vote right. in my hands. <laughs> so I'm All going right. to put, I'm going to go one, two, three, and I'm gonna do something with both my thumbs. <laughs> one, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> we have three affirmative in the studio and New York and Iowa it's again unanimous so wow 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 Laura McCollum yes. can, I, can I ask a slightly off topic of question mm -hmm. 
What is the difference between an Irish goodbye and a French goodbye? I've never heard of a French oh, goodbye. Is there tongue involved? Well, I thought the French goodbye was when you just sort of left. Mm. Like, if you just sort of disappear. But then someone said that an Irish goodbye actually has, like, a different component to it. You do something else. I thought you don't pay Irish goodbye was the one where you just leave. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's what it is. That's what an Irish yeah. goodbye. What's I a French goodbye? I think the Irish goodbye is just a, you have to be drunk when you do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Touche. So have, I, I, have I just been incorrectly calling the Irish goodbye a French goodbye? Darling, I don't think there's a French goodbye. I, I think I maybe I made it up. Well, <laughs> I don't know how that makes it French. Like right. just in a way that doesn't seem very French. Right. I think the French would kiss you long. <laughs> yeah. That's a French goodbye in the shower. My my version of the Irish goodbye is always to walk around everybody saying I'm 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 taking an Irish goodbye. <laughs> Does it count if you call it before you do it? No, that would be Marion though. Okay. <laughs> she would feel bad for doing the Irish goodbye, so she would have to go around and tell you. <laughs> oh so oh well, listen. Let's um let's talk for a couple minutes. Uh, We've invited Jennifer Knox to join us today because she's a poet and a friend, and um, and we've published her before, and we yeah. know crazy poems too. Pardon me, crazy poems <laughs> yeah. too. <laughs> well, and um, and we know Laura McCullough, and um, usually the Painter Bread Quarterly uh, best practices is if um, a certain team, whether you know if New York knows. A particular poet, New York will boot it down to Philly or vice versa, or at least the person who feels really close to the poet might recuse him or herself. And um, this this particular event of discussing Laura McCullough's poems um, made us think about all of those things because we can't Abu Dhabi, New York and Philly all. This is the only time we discuss poems together or when we podcast. Right. And we all know Laura and have different um, levels of friendship with her. But um, it's I just wanted to talk some about the all of those lines, how difficult it is to be a poet and send your work out to editors, you know, because you don't want them to feel obligated. And yet it's also hard to be an editor and reject your friends or feel as objective as one needs to be. So, discuss. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, um, I'm super curious to hear Jason and Jen talk about this um, because I've been lucky enough, you know, working with PBQ for as long as we have to see their careers evolve from being pals in grad school um, to having multiple books published. And, you know, as, as you noted, Kathy, we've, you know, published... Jen's work over the years and um, it's been like a delight and treat to see the poems in PBQ um, and Kathy and I have been in this position as editors for so long we're actually seeing you know a generation of poets come through and a field form right and I I'm, I, I'm a, I don't know I think I'm a believer in what I, I keep calling a kind of strategic sociability like that is your cultural capital, right? Like who you know, where they're placed, and then trusting on their, you know, aesthetics and their ethical judgment about the quality of the work. I think um, I think it's actually a good thing for the, the field of poetry. I always feel like actually, because I, I know, like I think networking, and you probably know the origin of, of like the, the term networking, that it was, you know, like some study where they found out that people who graduated, like it was like Harvard or MIT or Yale, right? That they were all friends with each other and they all got each other jobs. And then everyone was like, oh, okay, so let's institutionalize this thing, mentoring, or sorry, networking, mm -hmm. which, which similar to mentoring, right, has been institutionalized. And now when you show up at a job, like you get assigned a mentor. And if you've had an actual mentor, you know, that's that's crazy pants, but that's not <laughs> how that works. Um, and and for me, it's it's been like, I mean, almost the opposite, where there are a lot of people who I'd really like to be friends with, but I don't really like their work. Mm. And you mm. kind of can't be, I don't know, maybe Jen will disagree with me on this, but it's like, if you, if you really, like, if you really like someone, but every poem that you read by them and everything they send you, you're kind of like, oh yeah, not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really, really hard to be friends because there's this part that's like really central to them. And I feel so lucky, you know, that, like um, Jen, it's kind of impossible. 
right? It's it's you can't tell them the truth, and you can't really be friends with someone that you can't tell the truth to. Right. Right. So like like you hear all these stories about like oh well, you know like oh they're networking and networking and they're like you know creating this kind of like you know mutual admiration society and it's like well and, and it, it almost sounds um, like nepotistic and uh, I don't know like like very very self serving but but I, I like my own experience has has really not been that that like. You know, like certainly, I'm I'm so grateful for like my friendship with Je- like Jen. I love you. I love you. Too. Love your work. Vice uh, versa. Yeah, but like I I feel I feel really grateful and lucky. I don't I don't feel like that was like, and and yeah, I definitely. I mean, I in part I did go to grad school to meet you, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, not necessarily knowing that it was you, but I went to grad school thinking like I'm going to meet a cohort of people whose like work I love and who are dedicated to poetry and who I care about, mm-hmm. but. I think one yeah, aspect like, of I, that. I mean, I, I, I maybe, would, maybe I'd be better off if I could, if I could lie more and like, <laughs> you know. But I mean, I love, I love reading your work, and I love you, and I, I, I mean, I guess it, it is, Advent. I guess from the outside, that looks like something else, and it looks like from the inside, maybe. Well, I think if we didn't, if we didn't like each other's work, we probably, but we were still friends. We just wouldn't talk about each, our right. work. Yeah, we wouldn't do that. Wouldn't be part of our friendship. I also knew your work before I knew you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah, because we we were meeting in, in workshops, so we were seeing what each other were doing and liking that, and then that was kind of prompting us to be like, "Hey, I don't know if it's like an outright lie." I think, I think you and I are both chatty. Mm-hmm. No matter what we're writing, we're <laughs> talking to somebody, and I'm starting to see how starting to figure out how rare that is. Yeah. That the, that the act of, this is not, poetry is not about communication for a lot of, a lot of poets. Yeah. So I think we share, we share that, that we're, we're communicators. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you, what are you um, wanting to interject here, Alexa? I'm just thinking about that communication aspect and, and saying like, I don't think it's like a lie or you're not intending to hurt someone by being like, didn't like rejecting their poem um, in a sense that it seems as if the relationship between um, Jason and Jen has that ability to be like, I like this poem, but it's not your best work. Uh, and for that, oh, like yeah. you need to just keep working on it. Mm-hmm. Like having Absolutely. that ability to be like, mm, not this one, mm-hmm. but like keep going. And like, I know you have the ability to create this really great poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and even having mm-hmm. that uh, like friendship to fall back on being like, I've read these things, like you haven't sent them out. Like that kind of poem would be better. Right, right. We're not um, we're not just blowing smoke. Yes. Right. Yeah. But so yeah. that we're. Uh, I mean, I try and be as helpful as I can be, and I know Jason's taught me a ton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so, what do we say to poets who who are out there and they're shaking hands and they send us cover letters that say, "I met you at AWP," and even <laughs> though we met three thousand people at AWP, you know, we, we are supposed to look at the poem differently because we shook somebody's hand or. You know, do, do you- well, you know, it's, it's, I want to, I, I think I want to just flip that around a little bit too. It's like, okay, so PBQ has such a diverse aesthetic, right? Like these editorial boards in Philly, Abu Dhabi, and New York, right? Like in a, in a way, uh, have, you know, so many different voices at the editorial table. And that was really part of the spirit of this podcast is to sort of share what that conversation's like when you have a bunch of different people with a bunch of different opinions and no single editorial vision. Like there's not one person at the home saying, this is a PBQ poem, right? That the that aesthetic is actually built through this kind of conversation. So how do you then, let's say a friend sends you work and it gets rejected, right? Like it's, it's um, that that is a behind the scenes kind of piece of information and that it's great to be able to share this podcast, right? Like there are so many people talking about the work that it's not nepotistic. It just, it can't be nepotistic, right? For PBQ, certainly. It's not like the editor gets to say, okay, I'm publishing my friends. Right. But the discussion has to come through like, you know, layers of people before we're able to go to print. Or and go the podcast makes that transparent, what, what the process is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
I think shows how slow it is. Right? It's really time-consuming process. But also, I, th- I think it's it's nice that I think the podcast shows that it's a very respectful process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of people's worst fears are of editorial committees sitting around being like, ah, this is terrible. You know, that, that like we're all these kind of like 1950s cigar-chomping men who are drunk by noon, to quote Dem's uh, book title. Um, and, you know, are, are just kind of like enjoying... I mean, I've, I've received letters as... Not not as an editor at Pain and Bride, but um, as an editor at Bellevue, kind of accusing me of, you know, wanting to shut down certain voices. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, no, I mean, I don't, I don't get voices and say like, you know, like I hate this. I don't want it to go out there, and I, I hate you for writing. <laughs> I think we talked about that a little bit before about being gatekeepers and looking for what's good rather than looking for what's negative. I, I think we do hope with every every file we open <laughs> that we will be blown away and enamored, right? We're looking for what's good. Well, and I, I always say, like, you know, the other side of gatekeeping is curating. Mm-hmm. And I always try to think of myself as a curator. Like, if I thought I was a gatekeeper, I'd kill myself. Um, mm-hmm. And if I thought that my job was to keep out people, you know, for whatever reason, I, I wouldn't, like, I, that, that's just not, I wouldn't do that. Um, you know, but curating, like really thinking like, okay, this is something that I need to give to a readership. Like yeah. that's that's how I kind of value my job. And I understand that there has to be a gatekeeping function in that, right? I understand that there just, is, just, if we're just, saying no, we're saying no. To jump into that too, it's like, okay, so then what's the difference there too between say like curating and soliciting, right? right. So you go to a reading, you're blown away by somebody or you, you happen to know a poet who's working on a really cool project and you want to, would love to see it in PBQ. Maybe that's an act of solicitation, which is in fact something that our editors do. And then the flip side of that is like, okay, so what if a poet reaches out to you and says, hey, I know you, not just I've met you at AWP, but like we were hanging out and we were talking about this project, maybe it fits for PBQ, mm-hmm. right? And so, and that, I will pay attention to that. Like, how could I, yeah. how could I not, right? Like, I definitely want to bring that to the, to the table, but PBQ does have these sort of the, this ritual of democratic discussion. Like that is just the nature of this magazine. I'll, I'll say for our New York staff, our general rule is um, you withdraw if you think you can't be objective. Yeah, right. Because a lot of times you're right. Like, mm-hmm. like well, one, like when when you hear something you love and you run up to the person and say like, hey, can we have that? Uh, which I know we've all done. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like the best version of curation. Um, but it also happens that sometimes when you run up to that person and then you look at it on a piece of paper yeah. two weeks later with five mm-hmm. people in a room yeah. who weren't there <laughs> when this amazing reading happened, right, right. everyone's kind of like, oh, yeah, like, like wow, that I can see how that was a really amazing evening when you were there. But <laughs> I'm glad to hear it was so awesome at the time. <laughs> yeah, this, this really doesn't need to be given to all of her. And I've also had that other experience where, like, I meet someone and I really like them. And, you know, they know that I'm an editor and they send me work and uh, it's just not going well. Um, and and our, rule, our rule is you have to like if because a lot of times, you know, I'll be looking at something and I really like the person, but I know that the work isn't right. something that I want to send out to a readership mm-hmm. or that it fits. And, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not just a matter of it's not just a matter of your personal taste. That's why you have so many people on staff right? mm-hmm. because it isn't one, it isn't a reflection of one person's taste. Right. And Jen, that's my it's excuse. A, that's what I use even when I solicit. First yeah. of all, I think Pain yeah. Quarterly solicits less than lots of other magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. let's get that said. We are definitely more open to our slush pile than lots of other mags. But, um, when I see somebody read something at a reading, that's how I begin the conversation. Look, this will have to go through a democratic editorial policy, right. but yeah. I'd love to see that on the page, you know, yeah. and then and then that way I can blame all of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have to not be friends with awful poets. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Or you can blame oh the board if that poet yeah. is your friend. Yeah. It wasn't me. Like, I liked it. No. Yeah. yeah. Just use passive voice. Like, the board. Right. The board. Mm-hmm. The corporate veil. <laughs> the corporate veil. Jen, have you, have you had weird experiences with like other journals where they solicit you and then like behave in odd ways? <laughs> yes. I was just <laughs> without naming names. You to, like, a big one. A big one. Um, and every time I saw the editor of it, he said, send us stuff, send us stuff. And um, 
whew, they shut me down in record time because the poetry editor was different than the managing editor. Oh, wow. And um, it was like, it was like, come over here, give me a hug. No, we don't want hugs from you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, it was funny. Did you ever get in? You still yeah. haven't gotten in that particular nope. mag? That's interesting. Nope. Uh-uh. Keep trying. Well, don't hug them anymore. <laughs> but I think, I think what, the, what the managing editor was doing was by asking me to solicit without, I think he just knew who he was, but not my work. Uh-huh. Who, who I was, but not my uh-huh. work. So I think that would be his response in general to any poet who he knew who the poet was. Right, right. Uh-huh. Like, if I know who you are, that means you're knowable. Mm-hmm. And I want knowable people in this magazine. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it is the poetry editor's job to say, you know, I have to reflect the the taste of a of a wider group here. Yeah. Yeah. So Jen, I love that you you use this word taste, right? Like I'm really fascinated in how taste shifts and changes and, mm. and how it gets constructed. And and one of the things I really love about the PBQ project is the sort of like the, the social construction of it, mm-hmm. right? Like how how we're all bringing our different sensibilities and yet arriving right at a consensus. Like mm-hmm. the, the poems today, Laura's poems, like you know, there's there's the, this is quality on the page, right? And quality when Jason's reading it out loud and we can all hear it, right? We can all sort of weigh into that. And um, I don't know, I, I think that's a sort of, and it's slippery and fascinating and is endlessly interesting to, to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I just um, went through this with students in our writing class. They wanted to know, well, how do we submit to magazines? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let's take a look at some magazines and we're gonna figure out what the heart to brains to balls ratio is. Of all the magazines, and PDQ has a high balls. Can we quote you? But it's very balanced. Yeah. yeah. Is, is this in your humor essay? The the because I know I I mean I know the the balls to brain to heart ratio. Yeah, you're but. heavy on the brain, and then when you get those balls in, it just cuts your throat. You know, I have to. Okay, can you please figure out what the emoticons or emojis are for that? Because I want that on a T-shirt immediately. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely clo- quoting you, Knox. Right, that's gonna be like the next yeah. sticker sure, we make. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> Mar- 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 and I are always looking for T-shirt ideas. <laughs> Biggest balls in poetry. Everybody's got that unique ratio. Yeah, that's true. It's really it, what determines. What determines what the voice is like is the, is really the secondary characteristic, um, and I, I would be hard pressed to say whether it's brains or balls on or brains are hard on PBQ because you guys are very equal. But there's so many literary magazines out there that lead with the brain, mm-hmm. and that's like a ninety percent, you know, of the ratio, and then the other two are just sort of incidental they wouldn't really want anything from me, mm. mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I love that, that the equation is like, and the theory there is that it's the secondary characteristic that defines yes. the voice, right? It's not, it's, so it comes on strong as either all brain or all balls, right? But it's mm-hmm. really that secondary characteristic that's gonna land a poem, right? Mm-hmm. Or land a, an essay or piece of fiction in the journal, right? Because sure. it is the combination of the two things. Mm-hmm. That's Jennifer Knox, that is brilliant. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I Thanks. love it. Uh, it also works for Marvel, comic, superheroes, and villains. <laughs> way to talk about it with a class because um, Joker and Deadpool are both all balls. That's true. Oh That's my true. goodness. But Deadpool is heart and Joker Deadpool is. Deadpool is heart and his heart is so skinny. <laughs> yeah. It's because he lives with the blind lady. Yeah. Hero and not a villain. Right. And it's the secondary characteristic that skews him towards hero, not villain. Mm. Yep. Got it. Good. Amazing. Brilliant. I love it. Thank you guys. That is a that is a terrific note to end on and something to just continue to contemplate. And we'll we'll put all that up on our uh, podcast pages, which 
live on our website. pbq.drexel.edu is where you can look at the poems and read along with us. Look at them later because I know you want to revisit everything that we um, explore. Um, and They're each wonderful. one of our episodes is has its own Facebook event. So please tell us uh, what you're thinking. Um, subscribe. Tell your friends. Send us a self-addressed stamped envelope. Yes, they still make stamps. And we will send you a sticker uh, for your laptop that advertises this. And, um, yeah, keep reading, keep writing. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Balls out, shall I say? That'll be our new sign-off. Balls out. This podcast is produced through a joint venture of Drexel University's Office of Information, Resources, and Technology and the Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. This podcast is the property of Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. All rights reserved.